and welcome to another episode of Varsity 360. I am Colombian sports editor Micah Rice, joined as always by uh, Meg Wachnick. And uh, Meg, whoa, we're, we are uh, uh, getting really deep into the fall uh, prep season. And uh, along with this show, we're, we're kind of hitting a rhythm. Uh, our uh, episode last week about uh, fan and coach behavior toward officials and how that's kind of driving them uh, away from the sport. That was our, our most viewed episode to date. And uh, we've heard plenty of feedback from it so uh it's definitely a subject that strikes a nerve does it not it is and, and that's really no surprise it's great to see what 300 plus views mm-hmm. um in in a five six day span so no surprise but it's it's good to see that numbers because it's an important topic and an important subject that people want to know about and they want to learn more about and hopefully we provided that. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what we're going to do. I think there's still, uh, for the, for this episode, where there's still, I think, a little bit more ground we want to cover on that topic, but also sort of touch on why we do what we do and why we do it in the way we do it, which is the prioritization of uh, local issues, local sports, and giving a local voice to uh, uh, these teams, these issues, and the, these organizations and schools, because as you'll hear from later on in this episode, it's it's not something that every community has, and we're lucky here in Clark County to be able to provide that with a, a independent and locally owned media company at the Columbian that uh, uh, gives us a lot of leeway to really go and pursue these stories and uh, uh, put a spotlight on, on people in, in your neighborhood and in, in your student body and, and just kind of how fortunate we are to be able to do that. And I think this platform that we're doing, we're doing something new. We've had podcasts years prior, but it was an audio only. And so now we're giving um, listeners uh, a chance to have something different, like a new medium to, to watch us, for us to bring issues to the forefront. So hopefully this show will go in a good direction. All right. Well, let's kind of revisit uh, uh, sort of some of the, what are, what's some of the feedback you've heard from our discussion? And obviously it's, it's something that uh, uh, the WIA especially has tried to um, put a, a megaphone to, to try to mm-hmm. get this message out that uh, uh, officiating is something that, that, uh, you know, it's spurred a lot of bad behavior from fans and coaches. And uh, you're seeing tangible effects to uh, how the football schedule is coming together. We learned uh, uh, earlier this week that uh, in Clark County, uh, Thursday and Saturday games are now going to be the norm. Uh, yeah. For, yeah. And, and so it's, you know, no more Friday night lights for every team. Uh, the, the, the lack of a officiating crews available it means that uh, teams are going to play on Thursday or even on Saturday. And, and so um, uh, circling back to my question, well, what's some some of the feedback you've heard? Yeah, I think the feedback, especially the first 48 to 72 hours, it was kind of a mixed bag. There were some former, even current officials who commented or sent an email or maybe reached out to us on Twitter saying, that's you hit it on the nail, right? I mean, that's exactly the reason why um, I either left the profession or left the hobby or that's, yes, that is the number one issue. And, and even one official uh, retired from the Evergreen Football Officials Association, even gave a couple of examples, a couple stories over the years, didn't name teams, didn't name fan bases, yeah. but said, yeah, this, this is a real problem. And, and I'm glad that you all had this discussion back and forth to bring awareness, not just in a written form like the WIAA did and, and so many other outlets trying to do, but basically just bringing a voice to it like we're doing right now. Well, and we even heard from some people who say that this, this doesn't start in high school. No, they, it, not they, at all. They, they see it in, uh, in, in, 
for example, the youth football organizations yeah. around here where it's seven, eight-year-old kids and parents are treating it like it's it's the Super Bowl. Exactly, basically. yeah. So I was out last week at Mark Morris, Washougal, for that, that game that Washougal won. And pregame, I do my traditional uh, meet and greet with the coaches pregame, just let them know, hi, I'm here, and anything that I need to know about this newsworthy. And I ran into Terry Hyde, um, former Evergreen head coach and who runs the Clark County Youth Football League. And he watched the episode last week and appreciated the banter back and forth, but said, yeah, you're absolutely right. It starts with the youth leagues, and he's not afraid to toss parents. He's also not afraid to toss coaches, um, and it's amazing. These are very young elementary age kids, and again, it, it starts at, what, seven, eight years old? They're dealing with this, and again, these officials are most likely working on Saturdays, so these kids and these families can have this great experience. Yeah. And it's it's amazing. I think one of my favorite uh, pieces of feedback I heard from, was from someone who, uh, a volunteer who was running the uh, scoreboard at a uh, junior varsity basketball game, and they had switched the gyms, uh, so she wasn't familiar with the operations of the scoreboard, and, and uh, uh, parents started to uh, uh, rip on her, saying, you know, learn how to do, just, you know, basically being jerks that they can be sometimes and she turned around and said shut up it's only jv and i thought that just kind of put them in their place it's like so what if the scoreboard isn't working the kids it's, it's junior varsity the kids are working on their you know on their skills getting better improving you know no nobody's gonna hand out a state championship for jv exactly and so not not saying that jv games aren't important <laughs> don't take don't take that out of context but uh, uh, really there's some perspective needed here it is and i think yeah. one thing we didn't touch on last week was I know that the, the main subject was about fan behavior toward mm -hmm. officials but in a lot of places right behind fans if fans is number one one a is is coaches and it just makes me think of a couple stories that come to mind I mean one of them is is a well-known name in this area for basketball David Long who retired last year from Columbia River after 34 years and I did a story on him last January and he brought this subject up I didn't but he said his biggest regret out of all of his years of coaching basketball was how he treated officials mm -hmm. and my follow-up question was was why and he said I always thought of them as the enemy and I know now that that's wrong mm -hmm. and I've heard stories about coach long and and he talked about in really the late 90s when he said that boys basketball was at its peak in Clark County where he would just be so fired and amped up on the sideline he wanted every call to be right in the last eight or ten years of his career he realized that officials aren't the enemy they don't care who wins just like us in the media we don't have favorites we just want a quality game that ends in a reasonable hour yeah. um, but for him to say that I thought took um, a lot of guts I mean he's what you would call an old-school coach mm -hmm. um, he still feels that there shouldn't be a clock a shot clock in, in Washington high school basketball but for him to come out and say that I thought um, was a big deal for him to admit that after all these years. Well, and for someone of his stature to say that, that has to carry a lot of weight with mm -hmm. younger coaches because people are going to look at, at him as kind of a model of someone who has done everything in, in high school basketball coaching, uh, you know, longevity, success, getting players to the collegiate level. Um, mm -hmm. And for him to say, you know, I was wrong, when you know he, he's racking up one of the you know um, perhaps the the winningest uh, record in Clark County uh, high school basketball coaching history, it's uh, you know th that is a you know, blaring message to younger coaches that uh, look you know I uh, took me. 
20 some odd years of a 30 year career to learn this, but uh, that's something that you can learn from day one. It is, and I think a great moment was his final game coaching where he actually went out before as the officials ran back into their locker rooms and stopped and, and shook each of their three hands. Yeah. And I think that was a great, a, just a great touching moment. Yeah, because, I mean, as as amped up as Coach Long could be, he was always classy and mm-hmm. always, always put the right priorities first. And so for him to kind of make a show of that, I think just hammers home the point that, uh, that yeah, these are people that need to be respected. And frankly, you know, he doesn't have a coaching job if there's nobody to officiate these that's, games. That's true. And, no, know, you're absolutely yeah. right. And you think of basketball, and that's probably the one sport where the officials are, are so close to the benches in a three-man crew that you see that interaction with coaches and officials, even if it's, you know, hey, can you watch the hand check? Hey, mm-hmm. can you watch the grabbing of the, of the jersey down low in the post? And so you don't really see that in football as much because outside of the line judge and the side judge, you know, all the other officials are in the middle of the field. Just like soccer, they're in the middle of the field. Mm-hmm. And so basketball, it's more commonplace to see that interaction, but it still doesn't have to be a shouting match. Well, and I think basketball, because of the nature of it, how many bang bang subjective judgment calls there are to be made in a very fast sequence of events uh, yeah I think it, it uh, lends itself to the most uh, uh, opportunities to have a different let's say opinion of what the uh, what the official has ruled so exactly yeah. I mean the block charge call always will be yeah. half the gym agrees with it and then half yeah. the gym uh, is disgusted by the call so you're always those 50 50 calls in basketball they're always going to get people fired up What's uh, just curious? What's what's maybe the most egregious example of misbehavior that you've seen at, while you're covering a game? So I've been doing this. What have I said? This is my fifteenth year yeah. in high school sports. So way back when I was, gosh, twenty three, twenty four years old, I was starting my career up in Olympia, and uh, coached by the name of John Barbie, who I believe is now the boys' coach at Tuckwilla. Um, or I'm sorry, but Foster up in Tukwila. He used to be the men's basketball coach at the Evergreen State College. And at this point, um, he was coaching River Ridge Boys, which had had a, a state streak of, I think, three or four years at that time. And he actually got tossed during a JV game. He was in the stands and not proud of the officiating. And I was there, and I was laughing. I couldn't help but just laugh at the situation. Um, and he spent the rest of the JV game, which I was believe still three quarters, and the entire varsity game on the bench, or I'm sorry, on the bus, because River Ridge was the visiting team. So he spent a good probably two, two and a half hours sitting alone on the bus, and I just I couldn't help but laugh the entire time. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I wonder what goes through a person's head when they're, you know, they have that much time to reflect on. I just got tossed during a JV game that I'm not even coaching. Exactly, you know, and, and I, I remember watching him having some choice words you could hear him during a jv game that's obviously not as packed as a varsity game but you could hear him going off but i was surprised that he was tossed but the officials were not having it and i think he maybe lasted 10 minutes before he was tossed so that was the one that comes to mind is is definitely john barbie yeah my most egregious episode it, it has to do with the parent it's not just because of the you know the 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 you know, it wasn't even words. It was just the fact that this gentleman was so wrong and so consistently wrong. It was a Trico uh, a district baseball game up at Castle Rock. I think it was between like Kingsway and, and maybe Elma or, or something like that. And one of the fans just every pitch while the opposing pitcher was on, that's a balk. He's not coming set. That's a balk. And he just 
non-stop and just taking like sucking all the oxygen out of the game and and number one it wasn't a Bach he was coming set I mean it it it, it but it, it was such a distraction that you know kudos to the umpire for for ignoring it and not letting it affect how he did his job but I really wish he would just turned around and told him to shut the heck up because it was it was just so annoying and it made me think like what what's the what are you what's the end game here are you trying to get like an extra base for your kids team right. uh and uh uh and the fact that there's a, a an adult father willing to go to the those lengths of basically embarrassing himself for four or five innings of a baseball game to try to get an extra base for his kid's team. And this likely guy. embarrassing the kid himself, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. So it, uh, uh, yeah, it's everyone, well, not everyone. There's a lot of good apples out there, but the ones that think they know and can see the game better than the people that have been doing it for years, if not decades, just really blow my mind sometimes. <laughs> it is. I mean, there is actually an example at, at the Mark Morris Washougal game that I was at right before halftime. Uh, Washougal, or I'm sorry, um, uh, Mark Morris had a, a quick, a quick score, and and the kid actually fumbled the ball after crossing the, the goal line, and and that touchdown still counts. But everyone in Washington was saying, "Oh, well, he fumbled the ball." And mm-hmm. it's just like, "Well, no. If the ball crosses the goal line, that counts for six points." Yeah, so it's just like. <laughs> learn a rule book yeah you know it's the first thing that came to mind so learn the rule book all right well you know one, one of the things that stood has stood out to me about this discussion and and uh you know elevating it and in, in, in any way we can in the show is is you know the thing being thankful that we're able to do what we do here and uh, i i've always said that i think clark county's kind of in a sweet spot with uh uh, it's big enough so that we're we have a lot of opportunities. You know, there's a lot of high schools here. We're part of a larger metro area, but it's small enough where people still care about their neighborhoods and mm-hmm. and their schools. And and that when a high school uh, team goes and makes a league or district or state championship run, it, it resonates in the community. And and uh, what got me thinking about this and why I wanted to talk to it uh, about it uh, this this time is that uh, I. I have a yearly gathering with friends I've known since I was in elementary school with some of them growing up in Eugene, Oregon. We, we always make a point to gather every September and catch up and learn what's going on with each other's lives. And, and, um, uh, couple of them live in Seattle, a couple of them in the Bay Area, a couple of them in Iowa, one in, in, in Bend, Oregon. And uh, uh, a lot of, you know, when, when my job would come up and what I'm doing, a lot of them uh, just said that we have no local news source or what we do have is a, a shell of what it used to be. And we feel like we don't know what's going on in the community. We feel like people who are you're striving to do some excellent things there's there's no way to learn about them and unless it's through a very specific like if you follow that team specifically in that own team's page um and so it just left me with a sense of gratitude that, that we're able to uh here with a a locally owned independent media company uh we're able to tell those stories and and pursue that because uh, i know meg you've you've worked a long time at, at this in this industry and covering um, stories at this level of the community that uh, uh, it, it really is a shame to see what happens in communities without that outlet. It is. I mean, I, I touched earlier um, in this segment about starting my career in Olympia. I spent almost mm-hmm. eight years there and 
and to see the coverage now, you're right, it's, it's a shell of what it used to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I was very proud of the coverage that I did then, and, and to see it bare bones now, it just it breaks my heart for so many coaches and, and teams and athletes that I still know in that area. But the reason why I, I still do this after 15 years is, is I like to say it's, it's, it's not about the games themselves, but it's more about the people who play them. And that's where we come in as, as those great storytellers. Because so many of these kids that we cover, right, the statistics are out there about how few kids go on to play yes. college and how even fewer go on to play professionally. And so for so many of these athletes, this is their big time. And so why not give them that moment? Well, and I, I think one thing I've kind of come to appreciate as, as my two daughters have gotten older, uh, one of them is a junior now in, in high school and she runs cross country, uh, kind of switches between the JV and the varsity, is that you learn how important these sports are uh, for reasons that usually aren't covered in, in the newspaper. It really doesn't matter for a lot of these kids if they're winning championships or if, they're, uh, if their team has a winning record. It's, it's about you know taking a, a person who, when, when she entered uh, middle school, was, was so shy, I was worried about if she would ever find anyone to relate to, to now uh, she's involved in a few different clubs, but one of her favorites is cross country, just yeah. because of what that team does to make everyone feel welcomed and accepted, and sure, there's a lot of uh, of athletes that are um, uh, exceptionally fast on, on that team, but most aren't, and that that's okay. Yeah. Uh, and and so I think over the course of you know, obviously I, I started in this profession in in 1999 down here at the Columbia, and then seen a lot of twists and turns and evolutions with uh, kind of how we cover sports and and uh, what we place uh, an importance on. And and obviously the the more general interest is in when the football team makes a run to the state championship game or a basketball team is in the final four. But but what to bring it back full circle to kind of the officiating, it, it, it makes it I've realized and, and appreciate more so now than than I think I ever have just just how important the role of sports are in kids who may never see their names in the paper. And if we have to start canceling games or, or, or we, you know, you, you, you have to make more cuts because you can't have a JV team because you can't staff the games, then that's going to have a huge impact. And we saw that during COVID when extracurricular activities went away, it, it just was devastating to some kids. And so for us to be faced with the prospect that that might happen because of you know basically people acting like idiots and driving officials away that just makes my blood boil and that's for me i just wonder what what is the future right i think that's mm -hmm. where a, a lot of state associations um, and state officials associations are concerned with what is it going to look like in five years i mean that is a, what is it going to look like next year right right i mean it's it you can't just show up and, and be officiating Camus Union on a, on a Friday night, right? It takes gradual baby steps to, to eventually get there. And so uh, the biggest thing is, is where, where are high school sports going to be in five years when it comes to the officials? It makes me a little worried that I, I think about this a lot, too. If high school sports eventually become unsustainable, where are you left with? You're left with these club scenes. And, and, and the seven-on-seven yeah. seven scenes. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is a clear profit-driven motive uh, toward a lot of those, and usually it's generated or focused toward the kids that either they, they themselves or their parents see that as an avenue toward playing in college. Well, what about, you know, 
the JV kid who doesn't have college in his or her future, but you know has their life en enriched by being part of a team and, right. and part of that. If if that avenue isn't available and you're just left with these academies and and not saying there isn't a place for those academies, I think that bridge has been crossed years ago. Mm -hmm. But the fact that scholastic based um, uh, athletics. It's so important, not just in, in the opportunities it provides, but in the fact that why do people care about Camas High School football or Union High School football, but they couldn't, unless you're neck deep in it, you don't care who wins a seven-on-seven -seven tournament. Right. You care because they that, that group represents your community, your alumni base, your town. Right. I mean, I think of... A couple of years ago when the WIA reinstated slow pitch for girls, right? Slow pitch went away the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And in some state associations like Oklahoma, they still do state slow pitch. And, and I thought when they first brought back slow pitch, I'm thinking, are we kind of going back in time a little bit? Mm -hmm. But again, it's creating so many opportunities for girls who may not otherwise be a part of a team. You know, bowling is another example. I was just thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, 20 huge. years ago when, yeah. you know, it was kind of the sport to get more girls out for competitive athletics. And now, I mean, I have a heck of a lot of respect for, some of these bowlers are amazing athletes. I mean, state bowling is one of my favorite events to cover and it's amazing to see the growth of bowling in the state over the last 20 years. Who knows what slow pitch will be in the next five to 10 years as well. Yeah, I, I never think you're gonna go wrong by adding more opportunities. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, let's see where it goes. and. You know, it might not appear initially that, uh, you know, it, it was a really significant team or season or game, but uh, you just never know how, how that's going to impact someone down the road. Exactly. Yep. So. All right, I'm joined now by Will Denner. And uh, Will, you know, the, the sort of theme of this episode is uh, the importance of local news and local sports reporting. And you have a long history uh, going back to Medford and before that, uh, Chico, California, being involved in local news. Uh, but from a sports perspective, um, why do you think it's so important uh, that we cover these athletes in our community like we do? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, ultimately we're offering something that you can't get anywhere else, um, whereas, you know, national news and just kind of the, you know, the um, filtering of information like that is, is something that can be found um, anywhere. And I think uh, ultimately when you invest in local sports and particularly high school sports, you're going to get more just kind of community um, excitement around it. Um, I think I've seen I've worked at places before where that's kind of uh, been taken away a little bit and I think uh, you see kind of a difference in just the support and just kind of the interest it generates um, and I think the job we do here obviously is something that's pretty uh, pretty I don't want to say unique but the the level to which we do it is something that you don't see a lot of places these days yeah you know I think our community kind of hits a sweet spot in its size in that we're uh, you know we're part of a larger metro area uh, there's lots of opportunities families move here because of jobs because of good schools because of access to the outdoors and mm -hmm. and just other opportunities uh, but uh, uh, we're small enough in Clark County where people do care about you know their high school or or, or 
you know, their neighbor's kids who might play for the volleyball or the basketball team. And, and I've noticed, I see in a lot of larger metro areas that, that high school sports traditionally have been overlooked, but in a smaller place like, uh, like obviously when you were in Medford, yeah. uh, there was a lot, a lot that you did there and in Chico before that, and, and uh, uh, that there's that opportunity to really tell those unique stories. And so I, I just come back to that we're kind of in the sweet spot here in, in Clark County where we're part of a bigger area, but still have kind of a, a small town focus that we want to know about uh, what kids in our, our communities are doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Uh, a size of a community like Chico is kind of it's unique where it's it's small like it uh, I don't know you have like a mix of high school sports and and local colleges but then there's also obviously an interest for you know pro teams like all the Bay Area teams but you kind of I think in in Clark County it's it's you know obviously neighboring um, you know the Portland metro area but you also have the Seattle market um, and I think um, like you said, yeah, it's just kind of right in the middle of kind of a sweet spot of uh, high school sports and something that, as I said, like the community really cares about. And I think we see it in the work we do daily that, um, you know, when we provide more local sports content, um, that usually means good things. Yeah. And, and you know, I think one thing about working at a, a media outlet this size is we aren't just sports reporters all the time. We're, we're kind of uh, involved in our communities and sometimes get drafted into to doing other things. And uh, people that don't know about your background, Will, is, is that you had a chance when you were in Chico to play a role in the coverage of, of one of the biggest national stories that was happening in, uh, was it 2020? 2018, 2018 uh, okay. the campfire, yeah. So yeah. that happened in November of 2018, which was only two months actually after I got there. Um, and it was, as you said, just a huge story at the time. Um, ultimately, it, it became um, the deadliest, the most destructive wildfire in California history. And when you have a story like that, that's literally, you know, 10 to 12 miles from Chico, um, that becomes the most important thing. And um, no matter if you're a sports reporter like I was at the time, that's that kind of became the top priority for us. Um, what was interesting about it, though, is we only had about 10 staff reporters photog we didn't even have a full-time photographer at the time so we actually got some help from uh the bay area news group uh which was our our parent company and they kind of came in and helped us but ultimately yeah it was it was 10 really dedicated reporters who lived in their community and were kind of going through all this stuff at the same time as as everyone else was and uh yeah told the story and and yeah what do you remember about those days when no one knew which way that that fire would turn and which way that story would go not and and what was it like trying to report about a story but also wondering if your apartment or your house might still be there at the end of the day that's a that's a really interesting question i, I remember the first you know 24 hours i was uh covering a section cross country race um, about an hour away and it was the same day that the fire broke out and I remember driving back toward Chico on this highway and you see like this constant stream of cars driving the other direction and I'm like one of the only ones going in you see this glow on the hillside of this fire and because I had just moved there I think I was kind of reacting just kind of looking at the people around me and seeing how they were reacting and um it was it was scary honestly for that reason just because you you don't know um 
of something like that magnitude and don't really have anything to compare it to. And so, yeah, personally speaking, um, that was just something that I think it, 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 it was, it was something that we all kind of had to deal with kind of almost the, uh, the trauma in a way. Um, but then also, you know, tell, tell the story at the same time. I think the initial couple days were really just about kind of telling stories of, of people evacuating, like, you know, literally escaping this fire with, with whatever they had with them. And then it really turned to, you know, kind of the humanitarian crisis. A lot of people all of a sudden being without homes, um, the air quality being really poor and just, um, and even, you know, the impacts on things like sports, you know, the Paris football team, for example, um, had to cancel the rest of their season because it it just wasn't really, uh, you know, very tenable situation for them to continue. So lots of, uh, different angles and, and it was a really, um, bizarre, but also I think a really important, uh, several weeks for, for a job like we were doing, um, covering this, this national story, but being right on the ground and, and having the knowledge of it. So well, and, and the, the the team at the uh, Chico newspaper, the Enterprise, it, it uh, yeah. uh, that that was rewarded by with a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, say. so uh, we were named a Pulitzer Prize finalist in breaking news reporting Finals. for the uh, for the following um, spring. So that was twenty nineteen. Yeah, the. Uh, the Pittsburgh Post Gazette, I believe, uh, won it that year, and then it was also the uh, South Florida Sun Sentinel was named a finalist as well. But um, yeah, for for a team of like I said, like ten reporters to be kind of in that mix was pretty pretty amazing, and I think just uh, it was it was a total team effort and people just working really hard for several weeks after that to tell the story as it as it should be told and um yeah it was a really really important moment for a small paper like that well and that just circles around to why why i believe in what we do here and uh why it's important to have local investment in news because if something big does happen to community you don't it's not just people flying in from you know you know hundreds or thousands of miles away and and parachuting yes. in. you're you're talking about people that know uh directly friends relatives neighbors that are affected and they're able to tell a story i think with a, a passion and an inside knowledge and a, a lay of the land that you, you don't get on these big homogenized news networks yeah absolutely i i mean i i see it from you know an experience like living in chico but even here i mean seeing the you know the institutional knowledge that you all have of this community i mean i think between you know you and tim martinez and jeff klein have all been here 20 plus years and and <laughs> for better or worse <laughs> and meg Wachnick obviously being here for i think five or six years i mean just a ton of local knowledge in this community that i, that I think serves you know readers well and i think allows us to tell stories with kind of a deeper understanding and context that, um, you know, you don't get, like you said, from somebody just parachuting in. Well, you'll have one uh, one of these stories that uh, continues that trend in in telling uh, uh, a unique story in our community. Uh, Tell us about what you have coming up Friday. Yeah, so for our Friday football feature, I have a story on center receiver Davari Grower. Um, He's a senior on the team this year, and he wears these different colored gloves. Um, Sometimes it's like a bright yellow. Sometimes it's a pink or like a blue. And the reason behind it is... um, his grandfather has Alzheimer's and him wearing a different colored glove that kind of 
stands out and pops on the field allows his grandfather to easily spot him when he can't always remember his number or something like that. So um, it's it's not just a fashion statement for him. It's it's something that he does kind of to, to stand out. Most, I think everyone else on the team wears uh, like white gloves or something like that. So he, he wears these gloves and it's kind of uh, both for his grandfather and then he wears pink occasionally. Um, there's a couple of people close to him who have had breast cancer. So just kind of a way to, uh, to, you know, pay tribute and honor those close to him. And, uh, and not to mention he, he and the La Center football team are off to a great start this year. So, uh, kind of a, a chance to spotlight them as well. All right. So be sure to pick that up in Friday's Columbian or as always on 360preps.com. I'm joined by Tim Martinez once again for our weekly segment 3-2-C and uh, uh, boy the uh, 3A Greater St. Helens League really gets going in earnest uh, but before we get to those games there's uh, uh, another crucial 2A Greater St. Helens League uh, clash on tap this weekend it isn't there right and before we get to the games I'm just going to quickly uh, <clears throat> uh, go over some of our numbers 11 and 4 on our picks last week okay. takes us to about Right about hold steady at about seventy four percent pick rate uh, this week. So um, and those picks they get posted every Thursday afternoon. Preview capsules with links to live streams. Um, yeah, so the big game this week: two A Greater St. Helens League, Washougal at Ridgefield. These teams are both two and zero in league. Last two two and zero teams in league. Um, Washougal got a really nice win last week against Mark Morris. Um, yeah, so obviously the winner of this is going to be all in first place and have the inside track to the league title um, heading down the rest of the season. Should be a really good, really good matchup. I saw Ridgefield play last Thursday against Bay. I think you saw some of the potential that uh, the Sputters had, but you also saw a little bit some of the, the issues they're still trying to challenge, particularly on defense, which was a strength of theirs last year. They had a real sort of a tough time getting Bay off the field and bringing on the punting unit which kind of kept the, the Eagles hanging on there. Um, uh, the Spiders eventually uh, won the game out with some turnovers, especially late, to kind of widen the margin. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I haven't seen Washougal play yet this year. I saw them on video uh, in week one against River Ridge, and I think they're clearly better now uh, with Holden B and, and Liam Atkin running the ball, Sam Evers catching the ball. So a really good matchup. Should be a really good matchup uh, game on Friday. Uh if I had a pick, I'm going to go with the season favor. I'm going to stick with the Spiders on that one. All right. Traditional rivalry game in the 3A JSHL between a team that uh, a lot of people, including us, picked as kind of a league favorite uh, going up against a uh, challenger that is yet to be knocked off this year. Yeah. Um, Mountain View is a team that I'm still trying to figure out. You know, when I saw them play Union two weeks ago, I thought, oh, Thunder, they've got it all figured out. They kind of worked out their kinks, and they looked really, really good. And then they went up to Hanford uh, last Friday and, and lost to uh, a, a Hanford team that got their first win of the season. So um, still not sure what to make of the Thunder. I still think they're a really good team. And then on the other side with Evergreen, uh, Plainsmen are 4-0. Um, but it's I, you know, I don't know that we've seen uh, Evergreen put their foot to the, pet, to the floor yet. I think they've been trying to get a lot of different bodies in, mixing the ball around, different sets of running backs. They have splitting time at quarterback, um, and I just I don't know if I've seen them. We've seen them yet play at their full potential, and so don't really know how good the Plainsmen are. 
Um, so this will definitely be a really good test. And I think going forward in the 3A Graders and Hens League the rest of this year, whether it's Mountain View, Evergreen, Kelso, or Prairie, anytime these teams play each other, it's going to be a good matchup. Um, so, um, yeah, so Mountain View, Evergreen, it's a little bit weird that they kick off league play mm -hmm. playing each other because you used to finish the season playing each other at the end of the year. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and stick with uh, Mountain View on the, on the pick this week, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Evergreen pulls it off. Well, and the schedule makers, like you said, uh, they, they gifted us a two-pack this uh, this weekend to start three GSHL play because those other two teams who feel like they have uh, a really good shot of being in the mix for the league title are playing each other, Prairie and Kelso. Yeah, Kelso, um, they have a, a good defense. Um, they won their first two games, and then they've lost their last two, but their last two games against Tumwater, perennial two-way power, and then uh, against Camas last week. So they've been playing some tough teams. Uh, Prairie jumped out, won their first three, and then they uh, uh, took their first loss last week to Union. Uh, yeah, this is sort of a game to, to see where all that, what, what all that means and where, the, you know, where they're going to go from here. Um, it would be a big win for the Falcons, to, especially going up to Kelso and winning. Um, again, I think it's a, I think it's a toss-up game. I think it can go either way. Turnovers will probably play a big role. Um, I owe one to the Falcons from clinking one in uh, week two, uh, so I'm going to pick the I'm going to pick the Prairie for the upset of the week. All right, book it. <laughs> yeah, as always, uh, if you can make it out to any of the high school football action around Clark County this weekend, be sure to do so. Um, yeah, it, it, the league seasons are really starting to heat up. The only one that really hasn't uh, kicked off league play uh, uh, after this week will have been 4A, but uh, uh, that will be here soon enough, and a lot of exciting action out there. As always, be sure to check out 360preps.com or pick up the Columbian on Saturday.